this morning. I love the way that that song kindles in in the heart a a humble gladness for Christ and the gospel. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Uh, But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. What a wonderful, wonderful truth to be reminded of on this Lord's Day. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. God has given us his word for our good, and it is inspired by his spirit It is our final authority in faith and in life. And so, people of God, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Imagine there's a family that has a beloved dog. Let's say he's a golden retriever. He's become a bit advanced in years. His eyesight isn't what it used to be. His bone's a little bit creaky. But he's so loved by everyone in the family that it's almost impossible to imagine life without him. Maybe some of you have such a dog or have had one in the past. One day, probably because of his fading eyesight, probably because of his inability to navigate around like he used to, he gets lost. And the family quickly springs to action. They drop everything that they're doing. They put all of their effort and all of their energy and whatever resources are needed so that they can find their old dog. Thankfully, several hours later, after darkness has fallen, The dog is found and he is brought home. He is carried home to his rejoicing family and by the end of the night he's doing his best even with his old creaky bones to cheer everyone up and jump around and play. In the midst of looking for that dog it would not be very helpful for someone to go up to that family and say you know that dog is really old and he's had a decent life. He might not be worth finding anymore person who would say such a thing would have no understanding of the love that the family has for the dog, nor would they be able to share in the joy 
that the family has when that dog is found. And a similar sentiment is expressed in Luke. And this passage is given to us to confront the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are so self-righteous in themselves, meaning they they see themselves as worthy of some reward before God. They're so self-righteous in themselves that they cannot understand the love that God has for wayward sinners, nor do they have the ability to share in the joy of one of those repentant sinners coming home. Luke shows us that Jesus is carrying out the mission of God in rescuing those whom God loves. And he is rescuing those over whom God rejoices in salvation. So here's the foundational truth from this passage today. The foundational truth is this. In Jesus Christ, we see the character of God revealed to us in the mission of God to seek out and find and rescue lost sinners. That's the foundational truth. I'll read it again. In Jesus Christ, we see the character of God revealed to us in God's mission to seek out, find, and rescue lost and broken sinners. That's the foundational truth. Here is the life-transforming reality. So here's how this uh, passage confronts our hearts and calls us to action. The life-transforming reality is this. God, his angels, and all of heaven rejoice at the rescue and repentance of one sinner. So our invitation is to share in that joy, or we can grumble and doubt God's true character. The invitation is to share in the joy of God, or we can grumble and doubt God's true character. We'll work through this text by looking at the prelude, the parables, and the purpose. The prelude, who's involved in the story, the parables themselves, and the purpose of this passage. So then... We come to Luke chapter 15, a hugely important chapter in the gospel of Luke. And it speaks to the magnetic attraction of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But it's an attraction that that is experienced by a couple of distinct groups, a couple of notorious groups. The first is the tax collectors. Tax collectors, of course, as many of us know, would have been a group that were hated in Israel. They were seen as uh, cheats and extortionists. They had made a deal with the devil, so to speak. They were leasing their ability from the Roman government uh, to tax the people of the land, and they would overtax them, they would extort them, they would use them for their own financial gain. So they were hated. They had friends, they had personal connections, and they had sacrificed a lot of that on the altar of wealth in order to get rich themselves. A second notorious group is the sinners. That would have been a a catch-all phrase for the outcasts, for the irreligious, for the immoral people in the land of Israel. For some reason, whether by choice or otherwise, these are folks who did not fit in the religious life of Israel. Perhaps they had no regard for God's law and lived like it, or perhaps they had had some kind of situation come upon them that had very little to do with themselves, like uh, maybe they had contracted leprosy. You could put people with leprosy underneath this umbrella of sinners. They were outcasts living on the fringes. But the startling thing about what we read at the beginning of this passage is that these are the folks that are coming to Jesus. They are coming to him. So the question we immediately ask is why? Why are the tax collectors and sinners gathering around Jesus? Well, let's think about what we've seen and what we've learned in Luke so far. 
Jesus has been coming, declaring a message of salvation. The kingdom of God has come, and it is a radical message of salvation. It's not radical because it departs from any teaching of the Old Testament. It's radical because it brings to the fullest realization the truths of the Old Testament. When God says, my mercy is as high as the heavens. Other places in the Old Testament where it says, who is a God like you? The book of Micah. Who is there a God like you who forgives sins and who pardons iniquity? That kind of character is embodied in Jesus Christ. It shows he, Jesus, shows God's passion for the lost. He heals the sick. He mends the broken. He comforts sinners. He receives those who come to him in faith. We think of of, uh, women who came to him and who wept over their sin. We think of of Roman uh, soldiers who came to the Lord and asked for mercy. And Jesus granted it to them because they came to him seeking mercy, seeking forgiveness, not trusting in themselves. And so wouldn't it make sense then that these two notorious groups, the tax collectors and the sinners, are coming to Jesus not just because he's going against the grain of the religious leaders of that day, but also because his message directly gives hope to those who are not hoping in themselves. And so, for example, as we've seen in Luke, Jesus has called for uh, a universal need for repentance. Remember, people came to Jesus and said, this tragedy has happened, a a, a tower fell on a bunch of people. Surely these people must have done something wrong in order to deserve this kind of judgment. We might liken it to something today like seeing a hurricane or some kind of natural disaster where we say, did these people do something to invoke the righteous judgment of God? And Jesus says, no, unless you all repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus has shocked people by showing that uh, there is a, a, a message of forgiveness that is going to be given to everyone in exactly the same way. He has sent people reeling uh, in showing and saying that the banquet of God's kingdom is going to be packed full with the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. You know, something about tax collecting and sinning is that after a while, it begins to lose its luster. And once it loses its luster, we see this happen in people's lives all of the time, right? There are those who are engaged in some kind of sinful pattern of living. Perhaps they're living according to the pleasures of this world. And there comes a time when they hit rock bottom and they become empty, But what happens is once it loses its luster, sadly, the religious people in the world will point at those people and they will say, I told you so. I told you so. And they will keep them alienated. They will continue to shun such people. But in Jesus Christ, the tax collectors and the sinners have found someone who has understood their condition. They've found someone who understands their need for forgiveness, who looks into their hearts and sees exactly who they are and who loves them just the same. Jesus loves them. And so we have to be careful to actually recognize what it is that Jesus is doing. We read in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law see that Jesus is welcoming sinners and eating with them. That's correct. He is welcoming sinners and he is eating with them. The word welcome carries theological weight to it. It denotes a deep level of acceptance. But What we also must recognize is that in Jesus, we see someone who will accept the person, but not approve of their practice. I read a really interesting quote this week. I thought it beautifully put it. 
said Jesus dined with sinners, but he did not sin with sinners. This was the wonderful way that uh, Rosaria Butterfield put it in her new book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She herself was someone who in the past was living a lifestyle that was contrary to the way that the Bible prescribes. Uh, But in doing so, there was a Reformed Presbyterian pastor and his wife who brought her into their home and who dined with her. And they accepted her, but they did not approve of the way she was living. And they showed her the love of Christ. And in showing her the love of Christ, it beckoned her to the message of forgiveness, to the message of grace, and to the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus has made his mission clear, hasn't he? He has come to make sinners not comfortable in their sin. He has come to save them from their sin. But the character of God, the love of God for the lost, makes it necessary that this is what Jesus does, which is in distinction from the way that the Pharisees act, who keep themselves away from these notorious groups like the tax collectors and sinners. To a normal person in the world, someone like a Pharisee or a tax collector, they're going to view the world in several different categories. The righteous, the somewhat righteous, the not really righteous, the sinners, the bad sinners, the horrible sinners, and the awful sinners. But to Jesus Christ, he views the world in simpler terms. And we need to learn to see the world through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ looks out and he sees those who realize that they are sinners, those who realize they need to be saved and redeemed, and those who do not realize their sin. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law represent these kinds of folks who are blinded by their self-righteousness. They think they have something in them with which God is going to be impressed. They can puff up their own righteousness and, and claim that before God. And so what do they do? They see Jesus and they are muttering. That word can actually be translated grumbling. That's probably the better, the better translation because it connects to all kinds of stories in the Old Testament. Probably uh, uh, most clearly the people of Israel after the Exodus when they're wandering through the wilderness. And remember, God has redeemed them. God has given them freedom. And they're in the wilderness. He's providing for their needs. But what happens again and again and again? The people of Israel grumble. And when they're grumbling, what are they, what are they saying? They're saying, God has forgotten us. And so you, you read things in the Old Testament, the Israelites saying things like, Oh, that we would have died in Egypt. Oh, that God would have left us alone and would not have given us our freedom and our liberty. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are grumbling and they're doing the same thing that the people of the Old Testament were doing when they are saying, God is not among us. God has forgotten us. God is not being faithful to his covenant. And so when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law look at Jesus and they see him welcoming sinners and dining with them and loving them and accepting them, they're saying, God is not among us in that man, Jesus Christ, because he cannot be showing us the character of God. That cannot be what God is like. God cannot have the character that would allow someone to accept and to dine with these types of people whom Jesus is accepting. But in doing so, we know that Jesus is doing exactly, exactly who God is. He's showing us exactly who God is, showing us exactly the character of God. That's the heart of God, the love, the passion for the lost. Because all of us together, don't we need to realize that we, 
stray like lost sheep. That's the heart of God. And that needs to be the hallmark of God's people. Just as Jesus welcomed sinners, accepted them without approving of many of the things that they did, so God's people need to do the same because we need to have the same kind of, of, of lens in viewing ourselves, to understand ourselves as accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. But we can't necessarily approve of all of the things that we do. I can't approve of all of the weaknesses of my flesh. I'm not happy with them. And God calls me to mortify the weaknesses of my flesh and to show forth the holiness that he creates in me by his Holy Spirit. We're called in various places in the Old and the New Testaments to abstain from every form of evil, to not walk in the counsel of the wicked, to not stand in the way of sinners, to not sit in the seat of scoffers, to walk as children of light. And so we need to ask for wisdom from God that we might know and understand how it is that we can accept those like Jesus did in maintaining a holiness and a purity and a righteousness that Jesus maintained. For starters, we can look at the way that Jesus dined with them, right? Even those who live in notorious patterns of sinful living need to stop and eat once in a while. God doesn't call us to go into the midst of the fire when when people are engaging in ruthless acts of sin or evil and call us to remain alongside of them. No, that's not it at all. That's why we need to ask God for wisdom so that we might reflect uh, the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Another caution that we need to remind ourselves of is that when Jesus goes to people, he himself can cleanse them. But we cannot do that. All we can do is usher people into the presence of the person of Jesus Christ. Point them to him, for he is the one who saves. So those are the, those are the people who are engaged in this story, tax collectors, sinners, uh, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. These parables give us an unbelievable picture of the gospel. They tell us about God's mission and God's love and God's sovereign grace. In verse 4, Jesus seems to suggest that any shepherd is going to leave the 99 in order to find the one. He said, which one of you will not do this? If one of your sheep is lost, you're going to leave the 99 and you're going to go find the one. The irony of that is that uh, the, the leaders of Israel, particularly in the Old Testament, were not those kinds of shepherds. God said, I want you to lead my people. I want you to be a shepherd for shepherds for my people, but they weren't that, those kinds of shepherds. They did not seek out the lost. They did not go and find the one who had wandered and gone astray. We read, for instance, in places like Ezekiel 34, God says this to the shepherds of Israel, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Now he says this, The strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought. The leaders of Israel were not seeking out those who were wandering astray and showing forth the love of God. Jesus is different. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. Remember what we read in John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd. And how does a good shepherd act? He seeks out and he finds the lost sheep. So Ezekiel 34 goes on to say this. God says, as a shepherd who seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I will seek the lost, I will 
bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. You see how Jesus fulfills this prophecy in Ezekiel, given hundreds of years before Jesus was born. You see how he fulfills that. You see how he embodies the character and the love and the grace of God. When the shepherd leaves the 99, it's a bit conspicuous, isn't it? But the point is the extravagant love that the shepherd has for the one that has been lost. We don't have any evidence necessarily that they're left in any kind of uh, immediate danger. But they're certainly left exposed. The extravagant love that the shepherd has to save the one who has been lost. And he finds the lost sheep and he rejoices and he calls his friends and his neighbors together. Which could reflect poorly on him because they could say, wow, you let one of your sheep get lost. But he doesn't care about that. He calls them together, his friends and his neighbors, so that they can share in his joy. The joy is likewise reflected in the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. This time, it's a woman who has lost one of her ten coins. And again, there is great effort exerted in finding what has been lost. And so, in both parables, there's an earnest devotion to the mission to find what has been lost. There's a a diligent seeking. There's a careful searching. And there's perseverance in finishing the search. Note the end of verses 4 and verse 8. Both the shepherd and the woman search until it has been found. Depending on how important something is, you tailor the length of your search, don't you? Depending on how important something is, that determines how long you search for something. If you need to go somewhere in your car and you're missing your keys, you're going to look until you find your keys, right? But if uh, you're having a mug of coffee and you want to have it with your favorite mug, but you can't find your favorite mug, uh, then you don't necessarily need to keep on searching. I had an experience like this on Friday. I was having my prayer and devotional time on Friday morning. And I found that it's been much more helpful if I can have my prayer journal and take notes and write names of people down. And I was refusing to start my devotional and prayer time until I found this little booklet, this little notebook that I keep. So I'm scouring my office for like 20, 25 minutes. Of course, I'm eating into the time that I had allotted for praying and for reflecting and for prayer. But depending on how important something is, that determines how long you search for it. And the search shows us the character of God. It shows us the love of God. There is a cherishing to be reunited with what has been lost. In many ways, Jesus fulfills for us passages like Isaiah chapter 40, which says this, Like a shepherd, God tends his flock. He gathers up the lambs with his arm, and he carries them close to his heart. He leads the baby lambs along. Do you understand that that is how God loves you? If you are a sinner who has been saved by the work of Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed by what he has done, do you understand that that is how he loves you? He gathers you up in his arms. He holds you close to his heart. So you see the mission of God. You see the love of God. We see also the sovereign grace of God. A lost sheep is pretty much a useless animal. It's going to wander astray and it's going to be frozen in fear. It's not going to be able to find its way back. Oftentimes when a shepherd finds a lost sheep, it cannot even move. And even when it sees its shepherd, it's still, it's it's so scared, it's so frozen in fear that it can't move. And that's why the shepherd will fling the sheep over his shoulder and carry him home. 
It's a picture of God's sovereign grace. Much less can a lost coin contribute to its being found. God will use various means to call people into himself in the grace of Jesus Christ. But as we look back, as we all look back, what is it that we realize? We realize that it was God who was seeking us and not ourselves who were seeking God. Take, for instance, the song we sang today. Praise my soul, the God that sought thee, wretched wanderer far astray, found thee lost and kindly brought thee from the paths of death away. We see the love of God. We see the mission of God. We see the sovereign grace of God. We see how the character of God shapes the mission. We see how the love of God fuels that same mission. It keeps going because God loves to redeem and to welcome lost and broken sinners. The purpose of this passage is to call us out of our self-righteousness. It's to call us out of any sense that we would have, that we would think like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who look at Jesus and they grumble. They grumble because they say, that can't be how God is. That can't be the way that God is, who, who is going and welcoming and dining with tax collectors and with sinners. Jesus says rather ironically, doesn't he, that there is joy in heaven over one who repents than over the 99 who need no repentance. See, that's an ironic thing. That's for the Pharisees who think they need no repentance. They have not realized that they are in the same boat as everyone else. As Jesus says, there is a universal need for repentance. Self-righteousness is what's going to blind you to the love of God. It's what's going to blind you to the grace of God. Jesus will say in the very next chapter, To the Pharisees, he will say this, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees practiced a man-made righteousness. When they would wash their hands, they would wash all the way up to their elbows to make sure that their hands were clean. They would not associate with these notorious people like tax collectors because they said, I can't even be around them in the off chance that they make me unclean. Their self-righteousness blinds them to the love of God and makes them grumble and doubt the character of God. The irony is that their man-made righteousness is not anything compared to the righteousness, the salvation-giving righteousness of Jesus Christ, who himself cleanses and redeems. And so we're called out of our self-righteousness so that we might know the love of God and know the way in which he welcomes sinners home. And then finally, it calls us out of our self-righteousness so that we might share in the joy of heaven. It says here that God, his angels, and all of heaven rejoices when sinners come to realize their need for redemption, to call out to the God who seeks and who saves the lost. See, God does not treat salvation as an obligatory act of drudgery. He's not saying, oh man, I created these people, I better make sure that I save them. That's not how God is. He rejoices over those whom he has redeemed. Zephaniah chapter 3 says this, God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God rejoices over his redeemed people. What do we need? We need humble gladness. Humble gladness in recognizing that we don't deserve grace, we don't deserve salvation, but God gives us, by his grace, a humility to be glad and to rejoice in what he gives to us, so that we might share in the joy of heaven, so that we can join 
that joy so that we do not remain wallowing in our self-righteousness so that we might rejoice in the God who welcomes sinners home because he had to do that for all of us. He had to welcome us home by his grace. And then lastly, maybe you're not sharing in the joy of heaven because you've never actually believed that God can still rejoice over you in your sin. If that is where you are today, come to the rivers of grace. Come to the person of Jesus Christ who redeems you, who gives you righteousness, and who empowers you to worship and to serve him. Come to the rivers of grace. See this picture that Jesus paints for us. The good shepherd who seeks out the lost. And come to the rivers of grace. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ who cleanses foul and wretched sinners like me and like you. We all need the cleansing of God. But God rejoices over the sinner who is brought home. So look to Jesus Christ and trust in him. Repent of your sin. Look to his work. And then rejoice to see others do the same. God calls us out of our self-righteousness so that we might know and understand his love, the depth of his love, who seeks and saves, and that we might share in the joy of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts. We pray that you would give us humble gladness in the salvation that you give to us by your grace. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work. We pray that by your spirit you would empower us to live the way that our Savior lived, pointing others to him, conscious that we are to seek out righteousness and holiness and yet accept those that you bring into our lives. Give us courage to do so. In Christ's name, amen.